Welcome to the Paul Foy Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Davey. And today, our guest is Melanie Joy. Melanie is a Harvard-educated psychologist. She's an international speaker and organizational and relationship coach. She's the author of five books included in that raft is the award-winning Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, which is an introduction to carnism. Uh, she's also written two relationship books, Beyond Beliefs, and uh, Getting Relationships Right. She also got a cracking book called Powerarchies as well. Um, Dr. Joy was a lecturer at the University of Massachusetts, Boston for 11 years, where she taught courses on privilege and oppression, feminist psychology, and animal rights. She has given talks and training on six different continents and in over 50 different countries, and her work has been featured in major media outlets around the world. She's the eighth recipient of the Ahizma, Ahimsa Award, previously given to the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela, no less. And that's for her work on global nonviolence. And Dr. Joy is also the founding president of the charitable organization Beyond Carnism and the co-founder of ProVeg International. You can learn more about her work at carnism.org. Uh, I brought Melanie on the show. I've known her for quite a while uh, because I think... Poker players will get an incredible amount of value around what she has to say. Uh, Melanie is an effective altruist, and I know that effective altruism uh, is um, something that a lot of poker players are interested in, and uh, you know, philanthropy and doing good in general. So that's what Melanie's all about. And more importantly, right now, as we're in the midst of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, more than ever, our relational literacy and the way that we communicate and interact with people uh, needs to be as tip-top as it's ever been. Like, we're going to be, some of us, stuck in the household with our family, um, probably for the first time in our lives for some of us, to a large degree, particularly if we've been, you know, working long hours or you know, traveling around the live poker circuit uh, for, for many, many years or whatever. So I think it's really important that we listen to what Melanie has to say today. We talk about COVID-19 and what people are struggling with and, and how, how she can help. So well, we touch upon that. Her book, Getting Relationships Right, is really interesting, really amazing. Um, I think that if you want to gain an edge in poker, uh, then ensuring that your primary relationships are doing really well is uh, going to be a great function of that. I think if you put two poker players head-to-head uh, -head with equal uh, technical ability and luck wasn't part of the equation, then the person who's got their shit together outside the table uh, will have the edge. So Melanie can really help you with that because getting relationship right is an amazing book. And also, I wanted to introduce you to her concept of carnism uh, and to really get an insight into the work that she does and if you are a philanthropic poker player and every year you're thinking about where best uh, to put your money to support um, animals, if that is uh, the thing that, that, that you're into, uh, and Melanie doesn't just help animals, obviously, who, who work on relational literacy as, as, as affects all earthlings, all sentient beings, uh, then you can check her out and you can learn more about her work and you can help her out. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Dr. Melanie Joy. Welcome to the Paul Foire Poker Podcast. Melanie Joy, how's life? Um, I guess as well as can be expected, given that we're 
in the midst of a pandemic. Um, but I'm I'm very privileged. You know, people have it uh, much much worse than than I do for sure. It's a challenging times we live in, but life is as, as well as can be expected. Well, if ever there was a time to get our relationships right, right now is in this pandemic. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But on your new book, Getting Relationships Right, you, you, it really is based around this term, um, re relational literacy. And I love it. I think it's fantastic. Everything that you're talking about in the book, I, I'm well behind. I, I think you're spot on. Um, could you talk a little bit about what relational literacy is, how it, how it um, relates to the individual relationship perspective, but also how it relates to your bigger epic meaning and calling of transforming the world, if you would. <laughs> Well, relational literacy is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. And this includes the ability to communicate effectively, as communication is essentially the primary way we relate. Um, I mean, if you think about it, relationships are so foundational to the well-being of ourselves and, and also our world. I mean, if you think of some of the greatest joys in your own life, right? And some of your deepest sorrows and frustrations, chances are they all have to do with relationships. Mm. Um, I mean, and if you think about it, most of us also have to learn complica complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. And yet we don't get a single lesson in how to relate effectively or how to have healthy relationships. When we look at the world, right, some of the most pressing problems in the world, like um, war and poverty, sexism, racism, um, animal exploitation, climate change, you know, these are not problems that are caused by the fact that people can't do geometry. All of these problems, these problems in our personal lives, but also in the world, they share a common denominator. And that common denominator is relational dysfunction or problem way, problematic ways of relating. Um, and the good news is that we can address many problems with one solution, which is developing relational literacy. Basically, you know, when we learn how to relate healthfully it's fundamental to improving our own lives of course um, but it's also fundamental to creating a better world for everyone and the good news is also that um, the very same tools and principles apply to all kinds of relationships you know so you know whether it's a brief relationship and interaction we're having with a stranger um you know whether it's relationships with other individual people whether it's how we relate as social groups i mean if you think about it if we weren't still living in the uh the relational dark ages you know we wouldn't elect non-relational or toxic leaders or policies that reinforce widespread harm and unjust power imbalances. Um, you know, relationships to, to other animals and even our relationships to ourselves. So the same principles and tools that apply to how we relate to our life partner, you know, are those that apply to how we relate in every dimension of our lives. I mean, you, you said there that um, there, is no, there, is no, there was no lessons on this in school. I mean, it certainly wasn't when, when, I, when I was growing up. So it's almost like uh, society has deemed that that job of raising, of, of creating your communica communicator skills or, you know, handing over that relational literacy lands on the laps of your parents. Now, I don't, about your, I don't know about your parents. I don't know about the parents of everybody listening, 
But my parents, you know, they kind of lost the uh, they lost the old book uh, when it came to relational skills. So you know, it 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 really becomes important the awareness of this. Like I have a three year old now, and um, you know how we teach her to communicate and especially around feelings and emotions becomes in, in incredibly important for parents i imagine yeah i mean it is and, and, and our parents did the best they could with what they had i mean they didn't get a lesson in how to relate they learned from their parents who learned from their parents and so on and what we don't learn from our parents and other caregivers you know we learn from our teachers um also often not the best role models or our um elected officials or you know hollywood so, you know, absolutely. I mean, the good news is that also that the information is out there. I mean, relating healthfully is not rocket science. Today, we have a tremendous amount of, of information on what exactly it is that, that creates a healthy relational dynamic or healthy mm -hmm. relational dynamics. And it's really now in the time of Corona, um, you know, where we're seeing really widespread relationship and communication breakdown. Um, you know, relationship breakdown is becoming its own pandemic in some ways, uh, because people who already didn't have the tools to relate in the most ideal ways are now under a tremendous amount of stress and their relationships are under a tremendous amount of stress because of too much closeness or not enough closeness and, and all sorts of other reasons. Um, but now is also an incredible time that we can actually learn this information. Um, you know, we, we have, many of us now have time that we didn't have before. I mean, I haven't left my house in a really long time yeah. and I'm getting a lot of work done being yeah. in here, but I also have time to read and, and catch up on things that I, I didn't have before we went into lockdown here in Germany. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I'm, I'm going to, um, I'm going to give you a, a little example of my situation and my family. We can use, we can use that as kind of like a test pilot um, about around the coronavirus. But, but, but before we get there, um, this isn't the first book on relationships you've written. Uh, you wrote Beyond Beliefs, which was a real, almost like a, like a niche look at a, a, set, a part of relationship uh, literacy, which was the vegan versus non-vegan relationship. And as you know, I help people quit alcohol. So I looked at that book as a drinker, non-drinker relationship, and it was perfect. And it was, it was an amazing book. Um, why did you decide to write another one and there must have been some pressure on writing another one because that book was so great and it had so so wonderful feedback plus you know that the, the the market is uh you know it's bursting with relationship books isn't it what it, it must have been a uh, you must have had some thoughts around that when you were thinking about creating it yeah i i really wanted to um i i've been a relationship coach for a long time i don't work as a relationship coach anymore because I, I i run an organization and i just don't have time but i had always wanted a book like that i could give to people and feel confident that it had all of the information that i i wanted i felt like was most essential for them to have and, and don't get me wrong there are some fantastic books on relationships um, in the world, fantastic books. I wanted a book that specifically could be like a one-stop guide to developing relational literacy, like and that applied to all kinds of relationships. So part of the book was was my own, um, you know, analysis and um, you know theory, weaving my own theory into um, 
the relational work that I was doing from the other work that I was doing, you know, what is it? What is the blueprint or formula for healthy ways of relating that we could apply to all kinds of relationships? So it's not just a book for people who are married or dating, you know, it's not just a book for people in families. This is this blueprint, essentially, this formula applies to, you know, all of your interactions as well. So I also wanted a book um, because a lot of my work focuses, most of my work focuses on social change. So I wanted a book that also spoke to the collective dimension of relationships um, that we could apply to how social groups relate to each other, um, you know, to help create a more, uh, you know, a more equitable social order, essentially, and also that could apply to the way that we relate to other animals and the environment. Um, and I wanted a book as well that really addressed issues around power. So, you know, so often people are struggling in their interpersonal relationships and they're not recognizing that their interpersonal struggles actually reflect broader social structures that have conditioned them to relate to power um, mm -hmm. in problematic ways. And this is, you know, what I talked about in, in Beyond Beliefs with um, vegan and non-vegans or vegans and non-vegans in relationships. Um, you have two individuals in a relationship coming from very different social groups with very different social identities, assuming that they're both bringing the same kinds of needs and attitudes to the table and, and they're really not. You know, you have one, which is the non-vegan, um, who has basically the weight of the entire world behind whatever it is that they believe and they assert, um, you know, and, and they've also been conditioned to think and feel and behave in, in, in very specific ways that inevitably create problems with the vegan in their lives. And yet neither the vegan nor the non-vegan is recognizing that this external, you know, social system is creating problems in their interpersonal relationships. It's, 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 uh, it got me thinking then about um, poker as well, because um, poker is a form of gambling. You can't get away from that because there's an element of luck in it. But because it's such a heavily skill-based game, um, you, get, you, are, you do have the ability to become a professional poker player. Uh, some of the people listening to this podcast will have made millions and millions of dollars playing the game, proving that it is a skill-based game. However, when they had that conversation uh, with their parents, with their siblings, with the people around them, very often there's, there's a lot of shame um, and, uh, and a lot of guilt as well, especially if they've left school early and not pursued their degree or seem in their parents' eyes to have let them down because their parents look at them and they have this perception that all they're doing is gambling. And I, I assume it affects their status. How are people going to look at me about what my children are doing? Uh, talk about that dynamic a little bit and, and how maybe professional poker players could, you know, change the way they talk or behave maybe to deal with that situation. Yeah, well, the same um, the same approach applies regardless of of what sort of lifestyle difference you are trying to navigate with your friends and family, right? Mm. When you're trying to communicate with them about um, really encouraging them to become an ally, which is what you're talking about. Right, so, yeah. you know, the the whenever your lifestyle, your perspective, your identity is different from that of the dominant culture. In this dimension or aspect of your relationship, your interpersonal relationships, you're gonna have less social power. You're automatically gonna be perceived as the, as the one who's other. You're automatically gonna be perceived as the one who's you know, maybe biased, maybe um, 
less rational about you know what you believe and what you do that's just just the way that it's just the way that people are conditioned to to think and relate to each other so i mean for one step is just understanding that understanding that the play the power playing fields are not level mm. um and communicating in a way where you you know are asking the people in your life it really depends on what you want are you saying that people you know in the poker community for example struggle with stigma and struggle with family members and friends perhaps that don't understand their choices and that actually are judging those choices in the lifestyle i think that, i think there's a spectrum so you'll have people who are currently trying to get into the field of professional poker who have that stigma you'll have people who are fallen out and, and no longer speak to members of their family or the relationship has changed drastically as a result of that stigma. And I guess you'll have people mm -hmm. who, have, who have overcome it uh, and it doesn't bother them anymore, but their relationships are still, are, are still not right. Yeah. So, so one thing that can be helpful is, you know, really people can't, relationships are all about connection. You know, we, we feel happiest and most secure in our relationships when we feel most connected um, or more fulfilled and happy in relationships when we feel connected. It's difficult, if not possible, impossible to have genuine, authentic connection if the other person doesn't, uh, if you can't be your authentic self in the relationship, if you feel like you have to shrink yourself to fit into your relationship and there's some aspect or aspects of your life that you can't share with the people in your life, at least the people who are closest to you. And it sounds like this is some of what you're describing and mm. talking about where people have these misconceptions um, yeah, they, about they, what it is. They, they, don't un they don't understand it so they create a they create a perception of what it is an assumption right they create a story right yeah, so yeah. so everybody has um you know a right and a responsibility even to ask the people in their lives to learn about what's important to them like you have a right to do this and if you want connection a responsibility to do this but you have a right to do this to say to the people in your life look you know Poker is central, it's, or maybe not central, but it's, it's fundamental to who I am. It's really, really important to who I am. And you can't really know who I am and understand me if you don't actually understand this part of me. Hmm. So what I'd really love to be able to do is help you learn about this. You know, I mean, I've written about this in terms of veganism. Why am I vegan, for example? You know, why does it matter to me? What draw, what, what drew me to this particular lifestyle and way of thinking? You know, what does the world look like through my eyes? We all need to know that the people in our lives are willing and able to look at the world through our eyes and understand who we are, even if they don't share our lifestyle and even if they wouldn't make the same choices because we need to know that we're seen, that we're known, and that we're respected for the choices that we make. Mm. And that requires raising awareness because for a lot of people, you know, you hear poker and they automatically go to these stereotypes in their minds and then that's it. You know, yeah. you become that person that represents those stereotypes. So it's, it's going to be up to you to try to debunk those stereotypes by raising awareness and saying, this is what it's like. This is what my life looks like. This is what I do. This is why I do it. This is my community. I'm inviting you into it because I want to invite you into my life. And if the people in your life are defensive against that and are resistant, then that's important information that you are getting about those relationships. I, I'm going to give you another uh, comp a complicated one. I mean, relationships are complicated, right? But I mean, around the same kind of thing. 
I'm in the non-dominant group of people who don't drink alcohol. My parents are in the dominant group of people who drink alcohol. So I was having a Zoom call like this with my mom like two days ago. And she was saying, how's it going? And I said, well, it's a really tough time, man. Because so many people who have got problems with alcohol are falling apart right now. They're drinking alcohol to deal with the fact of the, to deal with the outfall of coronavirus. And so I'm very busy and I'm worried and I'm trying to figure strategies and help and support systems to kind of help these people out. And it's really challenging. And at that same time, my dad puts a bottle of Corona beer in the screen and says, hey, look at this, right? So in the, my relationship with my parents, I've never sat down with them and said to them, hey, look at what I do. This is really important to me. And the way that you behave like that really hurts my feelings and la, 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 la. I just shut up. I just say to myself, I don't want these people in my life. Even though, even though they're blood related, I'm just like, I don't want these people in my life. So because they're family, I just keep them at arm's left. And we, our relationship has changed to one of function. I have to call my mom this week because she's my mom. Not out of love, not out of anything like that. Should I be, should I be putting more effort in, Melly? I'm sure this is a, a common thing that happens. I mean, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, you choosing to make yourself vulnerable with another person, which is what you're describing, saying, listen, I want to talk to you about my experience. I want you to understand why this is hard for me when you do this, why I feel offended when you do this. You can only, it's important to not be vulnerable around people who you don't trust will protect that vulnerability. So it's, you know, it, it, you know, your relationships, you know, your family better than anybody else does in your, or mm. your experience of them better than anybody else does. And there are many people um, who are not at a point in their lives relationally where they're willing or able to hear authentic communication about their impact on others and respond to that in a thoughtful way that really protects your sense of security in that relationship. And if that's your sense, then you don't really, I mean, there are, you can say the same thing 30,000 different ways and a person is not going to hear it if they have an agenda not to hear it, if they're not ready to hear it and respond to it. Mm. So sometimes the, the most important choice or the right choice in a relationship is to disengage when it doesn't feel healthy. And you know, the, the formula for any kind of like a healthy relational dynamic is very straightforward, right? When we engage in a healthy relational dynamic, we practice integrity and we honor dignity. So practicing integrity simply means we practice the values, the core moral values that are shared across cultures of caring or compassion and uh, justice or fairness. In other words, it really is like practicing the golden rule. We treat mm. others the way we would want to be treated in that situation. But it doesn't apply. The practice of integrity does not apply only to others. It applies also to ourselves. How am I practicing integrity toward myself? How am I practicing respect toward myself in this situation? So a healthy relational dynamic is one in which we practice integrity to the best of our ability and we honor dignity. What that means is that we perceive the other and ourselves as fundamentally worthy of being treated with respect. We don't perceive them as being inferior to us on a, on a level of worth, essentially, or superior to us. And the result of this is one of greater connection. Um, this is what enhances connection in relationships. And this is, you can apply this formula to 
every interaction, every relationship you have. Um, it's not always easy to do, I know, but that is the formula. So in your situation, you know, you would ask yourself, what is the choice of integrity? Like, what is in the best interest of all parties in this relationship here? And the choice of integrity sometimes is the choice of disengaging, because otherwise you create a situation that just becomes more and more toxic. Yeah, I, I find it really difficult to, I find it really difficult to have that in my life, like somebody whose values are so different. This is what I found difficult in the vegan, non, uh, in the Beyond Beliefs uh, book you know put it into practice um i can i can coexist around my parents and stuff but i definitely have to disengage because just the the, the the behavior of what they're doing and the way that they do it is just it's just really kind of like rubs me up and, and my energy is all wrong so I, I prefer to kind of change that relationship and who, who knows over time uh, things might change you know but you know i call it like talking to a brick wall um yeah you know, well, it, it's also you need to have healthy boundaries. And, and when you experience people as being toxic to you, when you engage with them and interact with them, and you can tell when an interaction is, is toxic because you'll find that you tend to feel shame in the interaction or, and or contempt. These are like two red flags in relationships. They're two of the most non-relational or disconnecting of emotions. Shame is the feeling of being less than, essentially of being less worthy than. So when your dignity is harmed, you feel shame. You feel like you have less worth than other individuals on the planet, that you're fundamentally flawed. Um, you can shame yourself too, you know, when you compare yourself to like an idealized image of your, yourself. People do it all the time. Shame is usually a red flag in an interaction. If you're feeling shame, something is relationally off. It could be, you know, your own stuff you're bringing to that interaction, but it's nevertheless a red flag. The flip side of that coin is contempt. Mm -hmm. These two emotions only, they only exist in comparison, in relationship, right? We feel shame when we compare ourselves to others or to an idealized version of ourselves and feel less than. Contempt is an indication that we've placed ourselves in a position of moral superiority and we're looking down on others. Um, so when you're in an interaction and you're feeling one or both of these emotions, you know, there's a toxicity, they're, they're, they're really bad for you, you know, and they're also really very disconnecting emotions. Yeah. I often, I often feel when I talk to them that I'm, I'm creating, I'm somehow involved in their shame, you know? So if, if they talk to me and I'm going to talk about what I do for a living, and they and they love the opposite of what I do for a living. It's 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 almost like they can't even like my my parents won't even my parents won't even tell people what I do for a living. They wouldn't say to oh yeah my son helps people quit alcohol for a living. They they would they'd have no problem saying oh my my son interviews poker players and works in the poker industry, but they would have a terrible problem with the alcohol side of it. And something something you mentioned there, which is really important, I think. If you talked about, you know, very often when we look at relationships, it's easy to think that relationships are external. So uh, me and you are, you know, we're connecting right now. We're, we're forming a relationship during this conversation. Um, but we also have internal uh, relationships with ourselves and uh, guess all the different archetypes that we have within our own kind of mind because we're all kind of like slightly schizophrenic, you know. So talk about that a little bit because I find myself personally, my internal relationships you know, the way I speak to myself is far more complicate, 
complicated than learning to speak to somebody else. What's going on there? Well, we're always in relationship with ourselves. We're constantly relating to ourselves. Our primary relationship is with ourselves. We're relating to ourselves through our self-talk. Like if you pause, you know, at any given moment, you'll notice that there's a voice in your head and you're talking to yourself. And most of us talk to ourselves in ways that we would never tolerate coming from somebody else. You know, we've, we've internalized the, the, the culture, the dominant culture um, that we've all been born into is deeply, deeply relationally dysfunctional. Like we have been born into profound relational dysfunction. Normal ways of relating are often quite toxic. And, you know, we we're in this hyper competitive culture that makes us all feel like, you know, on some level, we're never good enough. So we just keep trying. We just keep trying to find that, that our sense of worth through being the best at what we do or, you know, the most attractive, the wealthiest, whatever it may be. And we've internalized this like, hyper competitive, you know, very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, it's, it's a very toxic way of relating. And we relate to ourselves this way quite frequently. And, you know, just do an ex experiment, pause, you know, every few minutes pause. And what am I saying to myself? Mm. Um, so we're always relating to ourselves through our self-talk. Um, and we can change that. Um, which is also really good news. There's, there are ways to change that. And I write about that in my book and um, we can talk about that a little bit later as well. And we're relating to ourselves as well through our life choices. You know, the choices that you make right now are impacting the Lee of five minutes from now and the Lee of five years from now, right? So, so when we relate to ourselves in a way that honors our own dignity, you know, that where we, you know, treat ourselves as though we're worthy of respect, you know, when we practice integrity toward ourselves and say, you know, what is the, what is, what reflects compassion, you know, in this choice, what reflects fairness or, or, or justice in this choice, we apply this to how we relate to ourselves, we can really start to heal our relationship with ourselves. You, I mean, when you were talking there, about this the self-talk and uh, having compassion and having a pause and kind of like raising awareness the, the word that came up for me there was mental health and, and i remember when i was when i was younger if you use the word physical health everybody was like yeah i get that but if you use the word mental health people were like oh wow this this person's mental there's something wrong with them whereas when as you're talking then it's almost like mental health you know good mental health, not necessarily, it, it could be portrayed in a good light, like one way of improving or looking after my mental health is to understand and raise awareness of how I'm talking to myself um, and to use different tools and techniques to change that. And by default, that's going to improve my mental health, right? Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit around the stigma around mental health? Yeah, I, I mean, it's fortunately that's that's changing. We can also think of it as relational health. You know, our mm -hmm. mental health is very much tied in with with our relational health. Um, but because we've been born into this just incredible dysfunction, I'm amazed that people make it through the day half the time. I mean, right. the way that we treat each other, the way that we talk to each other, the way that our, you know, world leaders talk to and about people and choices that are made that cause, you know, extensive harm to millions of individuals in the world. It's, 
it's, it's almost mind boggling when you think about it from a relational perspective, you know, because it's, these behaviors are so non, non-relational. Non-relational behaviors are actually the opposite of the behaviors that I talked about that create healthy relational dynamics, right? A non-relational behavior um, or a non-relational dynamic, however you want to look at it, is one where we violate integrity, right? We treat the other or ourselves in a, in a way that does not reflect compassion and fairness, um, that's disrespectful, and we harm dignity. We mm-hmm. communicate or act as though the other one, the other is, you know, not worthy of moral consideration, somehow less than. And so it's no wonder there are like most people struggle with their mental health. Most people have histories. Most of us have histories where our parents certainly didn't treat us ideally. Um, and nobody comes through life in a world like this unwounded. And we have our hearts broken. We have our, our parents make tremendous mistakes in how they're raising us. Um, we, we live in a culture that teaches us that we're only as good as we are um, productive. You know, we're only as worthy as we are productive. Um, we're, we're socialized, you know, there's a lot of gender socialization as well. You know, men, men learn that they have to be able to fix every problem that comes their way and that they have to be these autonomous islands unto themselves, um, which creates a lot of problems in their lives and relationships, you know, women learn to, to function in, in other ways and are treated in certain ways that makes it extremely difficult to, to move through the world with the kind of relational integrity that we all want. Mm. And, and that, that, that brings us to the, the current situation and, and, you know, everybody's worried about catching the coronavirus and passing the coronavirus on. So we all kind of lock ourselves in our houses. But just to give an example about what's going on in this house, I'm in LA at the moment. I've got two in-laws with me. Um, both of them are in their late seventies. So they're high risk and obviously they're very worried. The television, which is never on normally because my father-in-law works 14 hours a day and he's never at home is on constantly. Like it's on constantly with like COVID, 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 death, death, death. Right. Um, now they're in the household. Then it's me and my wife in the household, my three-year-old. Okay. Now, my father-in-law doesn't know what to do with himself because he's he's lost his he's lost his meaning and purpose because his meaning and purpose is a tailor. He goes to work every day, has done all his life to work 14 hours. Now he's in the house, he doesn't know what to do. And his wife doesn't know what to do with him because she much prefers he's not here for 14 hours a day. And then I'm trying to work like you're trying to work. And my three-year-old is coming up to me every two minutes and wants to play with me. My wife will talk to me while I've got my headphones on. So then we'll start arguing about our space and our time. And, and all of a sudden, our, immunities, our, our immune systems are actually weakening because everybody is like getting stressed and anxious and stuff. Um, what would be your strategies and your advice right now? I'm just using that one family example there'll be many many you know many more out there i mean the first step i think it's really important to recognize that you know in the best of times most people struggle to relate in a way that is effective um you know most people struggle with relationships so 
it's really important to recognize that people right now are under tremendous stress. For some people, it's like completely unique stress where they're trapped with their families for the first time, sort of like what you're describing, maybe in their lifetimes. And people are feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety and uncertainty. For many of us, you know, our world has become destabilized. You know, our work life is destabilized. Our relationships feel destabilized. And so it's, these times are challenging and um, we, I think it's important not to expect relationships to be functioning more smoothly than they are and accept that most people are dealing with, many people are dealing with relationships that are, um, don't expect your relationship to be anything other than the mess it might be right now. Um, <laughs> and problems that people normally have in relationships, you know, are getting exacerbated because, you know, we can't, our coping mechanisms, our normal coping mechanisms are taken away. You know, you can't, go to the gym and blow off steam after an argument or, you know, take your space if you need to, or some people are having the opposite problem. They're too distant from the people they want to be with and they're feeling anxious and abandoned um, because they don't have the connection that they need. All of this is to say, you know, that it's not, I'm not saying there's nothing you can do about it, but it's really important to accept that these are unusual times and people are not at their best. And we all need a lot of wiggle room for screwing up. Um, the way that we're all screwing up right now. Um, and we can still apply, like what I write about in my book, Getting Relationships Right, you know, we can apply basic principles for um, conflict management, you know, so you recognize, first of all, that people are very different. And um, when people are under stress, their differences can tend to become magnified. You've got an introvert and an extrovert, you know, living together. Mm -hmm. And in good times, maybe they see their introversion and extroversion as being nice balancing mechanisms for each other. Under conditions like this, the introvert might feel overwhelmed and flooded and the extrovert might feel, you know, frustrated that they're not getting enough stimulation. Um, don't make up a meaning out of what's happening happening in the interpersonal dynamics right now it's it's if you can see it as a temporary situation that is being created because there's a lot of external internal stress that will maybe give you permission not to be as frustrated about it as you are and if you know people in relationships tend to do better when they are better able to identify and articulate their needs and respond to the other person's needs so relationships are all about needs. And I said they're all about connection before. They are, but connection is all about needs. If you think about all of the relationships in your life, you know, chances are you feel more connected and happier in those relationships where more of your needs are getting met and vice versa. Mm. And right now, you know, more than ever, it's really important for us to say, what do I need? You know, what do I need? And in particular, what do I need to feel secure in this situation? What do I need to feel connected in this situation? I might need more space. I might need less space. I might need my partner to be more careful around hygiene because I am afraid of contamination and my partner is less afraid of that. So it's really important to really ask yourself, what do I need right now to feel okay in this situation? Because if you don't know that, you can't give the other people the opportunity to give you what you need and, and then articulate that need to the other people and be really willing to hear their needs and to do your very best to meet those needs if you can. Okay, thank you for that advice. I, I will take that on board. My biggest challenge is that the father um, is not, he's never going to, he's never going to talk about his needs. So we need to have acceptance with that and be okay with that. 
Totally. I mean, in your situation, right? And in some, like I said earlier, there are some people, they're not going to be able to engage in this conversation, in yeah. which case you say to yourself, what do I need? And how can I give myself what I need in this situation? Mm -hmm. And if you cannot meet your need, then you have no choice but to accept the situation for it is. And remember that these are very unusual circumstances yeah. and they're yeah. not going to last forever. Yeah, good. Um, I'm going to switch a little bit on some to other areas of your work for people who've never met you before. I first actually came across you through Daniel Negrano. Uh, Daniel is, uh, has been a vegan for you know, many, many, many years. And he, he tweeted out, uh, you've got to read this book, you know, and it was why we love dogs, eat pigs and wear cows. Uh, and, and I read it and uh, it blew me away in many, many different aspects. Um, not only because I'm a vegan myself, so it kind of really helped me to understand uh, how to live my life in, in that respect and the decisions I've made but more um, about how you, you realize that there was a belief system behind uh, the meat-eating industry, if you like. You called it carnism. Um, it was a real light bulb for me. What is carnism, and why did you decide to write a book about it? So carnism is um, the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. Um, you know, one way to really understand carnism is to do a thought experiment, right? So if you imagine that you are eating um, a beef stew and you ask your host for the recipe because you love the beef stew and your host says, well, you know, the secrets in the meat, you need to use um, three pounds of well-seasoned golden retriever chances are you are going to have a very different reaction to that stew than you just had moments ago. You know, what you just saw as a food, you would now see as a dead animal. What you just felt was delicious, you would now feel as disgusting, feel as disgusting, and instead of wanting to eat it, you probably want to throw it up. Mm. Um, so, so carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. It's, um, it is essentially the opposite of veganism. You know, we tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. But when eating animals, um, you know, is not a choice uh, or is not a given, it's not a necessity, um, then it becomes a choice and choices always stem from beliefs. And the only reason that we learn to eat pigs but not dogs, for example, is because we do follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. But we don't recognize carnism as the ism that it is because it is um, what's called a dominant system. That means it is, it's invisible and it's so widespread that it's woven through the very you know, structure of society to shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, etc. Um, it's institutionalized. It's embraced and maintained by all major social institutions. So, you know, when you study nutrition, for example, you actually study carnistic nutrition. Um, and it also becomes internalized, uh, shaping the very way we think and feel about eating animals. When we're born into such a dominant system, we inevitable, uh, inevitably learn to look at the world through the lens of that system. Carnism is also a, a violent or an oppressive system. So like meat cannot be procured without killing. Egg and dairy production cause extensive harm to animals. And um, violent systems, oppressive systems such as carnism really run counter to core human values. You know, the values of, of compassion and justice or fairness. Um, and 
So they run counter to core human values. Most people would never willingly support intensive, extensive, and totally unnecessary violence to other sentient beings. You know, most people, even if they're not like animal lovers per se, mm. nevertheless care about animals and would never want to cause them to suffer. And so carnism needs to use a set of um, psychological defense mechanisms, which essentially distort our perceptions. We, instead of seeing, you know, a dead animal, we see food, for mm. example, and disconnect us from our natural empathy toward farmed animals so that we act against our values without fully realizing what we're doing. Um, you know, so we see rational people you know, engaging in completely irrational behaviors when it comes to eating animals. You know, you're petting your dog with one hand and you're eating a pork chop with the other and not, not recognizing how irrational it is for, for those of us who care about animals to nevertheless support harm toward animals. Um, the same thing with, with uh, you know, those of us who are compassionate. So carnism distorts our perceptions so that we support this violent system mm. um, without realizing what we're doing. And so what I did with, in Why We Love Dogs was I really wanted to understand um, it, with my doctoral research, I wanted to understand not just why people, you know, or write a book about not just why people shouldn't eat animals. There are plenty of books out there about, you know, the harm to animals, the harm to the environment. Um, you know, the United Nations even says that animal agriculture is, is um, one of the most significant contributors to some of the most serious environmental problems facing the world today, including climate change, harm to human health. There's lots of information out there about these issues um, and the, the harms of animal agriculture. I wanted to look at, you know, not why shouldn't people eat animals, but why do we eat them in the first place? You know, why are people so defensive against the very information that would help us change our behaviors to create the kind of world that we all want. Mm. I think um, what I liked about it is, um, you know, if you just, if you just got a person who ate meat and or like when I used to eat meat and if someone kept telling me that eating meat is wrong or eating meat is bad, then my belief system around meat eating, which is carnism, I recognize it as carnism now, but back then I didn't even know what it was. You know, Gary Van Warmerdam, he wrote a book called Mindworks. He talks about belief bubbles. So every belief is like in a bubble. Um, and I like take it one step further. And I think to myself, if you're going to say to someone who's eating meat, shouldn't eat meat, shouldn't eat meat, you know, and, and all the, you know, common things you're going to say, that bubble actually turns into like a phalanx. Out come the swords, out come the knives. And they actually, it actually hardens their belief and strengthens their belief. Uh, that eating meat is correct because they're desperate to prevent that cognitive dissonance. So now it's like, woof, and then you're getting hurt by it. So then, and then now you need getting relationships, right? You need beyond beliefs because now you're in a relational problem, right? Right. And, and, you know, you're absolutely right. There's this automatic defensiveness that, that, we often see around issues where people have been socialized to think a certain way to think a certain way that requires them to defend themselves from any information that challenges this way of thinking, right? And so, you know, people are, the vast majority of people who eat animals, and I used to be one of them, I mean, I was like the meat lover's pizza girl. I used to have four kinds of meat on my Tomino's pizza. Um, you know, the vast majority of people eat animals not because they're 
bad people, you know, not because they don't care, but because they've been conditioned to do so. And they've also been conditioned to resist the very information that would help them get out of the carnistic box. They don't even realize they're in. Mm. So this defensiveness really, it gets internalized. And, um, you know, the, the, one of the reasons that we do the work we do at my organization beyond carnism is to raise awareness of carnism so people can make their food choices more freely you know because without awareness there is no free choice and when people become aware not just of the realities of animal reality of animal agriculture and the harm that's caused by it um but also of the way that they have been so conditioned you know, that their, their thoughts, their preferences, their feelings have been, you know, guided by almost like an invisible hand. Once people become aware of these carnistic defenses and ways of thinking, um, they become much less uh, beholden to them. You know, it helps free your mind to see the hold, you know, that certain beliefs have on your mind. It reminds me of a study, I don't know the exact details, around smoking. Uh, they did a research where uh, they had uh, two groups of smokers. Uh, in one group, they, um, they gave them a deluge of um, horrific pictures and photographs of uh, you know, their lungs and all that kind of stuff. And then the other group, they didn't do that, but they, they give them all this uh, information around big tobacco companies and how they'd hoodwink them and how they convinced them that, uh, that smoking added value to their lives when in fact it was killing them. And it was that group the group that felt, oh, I'm not in control. I don't have autonomy. I didn't make this choice. Like somebody is like influ influencing that. That was what made a big difference. And I remember when I read your book, I don't know if this is like normal or it just speaks to people of my personality traits and my characteristics, but I read that and I was like, holy cow. Like I'm, I'm eating meat because of this system. And I don't like to be controlled by a system. I understand systems and I understand them in my life, but I want to, I want to make a conscious choice. So now I'm aware of this system. I can make a conscious choice. Same with alcohol, same with uh, uh, cigarettes, right? Like I can make a conscious choice now, not when I was a teenager or when I was eight or seven or six, when it's just being fed to me, like now I can make a conscious choice. And that's, that's really important. We don't have to remain fixed in our being. We can change at any time. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you know the specific ways that your mind has learned to be distorted, I mean, it takes a lot of psychological energy to remain unaware of what's right in front of us. Mm. You know, we are, we, we walk out the door and we see trucks of, of body parts driving by us. And these are trucks that are driving to, you know, like butcher shops we see that as food. When you're aware, when you become aware of the psychological mechanisms that cause you to see dead beings as food, you, you start to not see them as food anymore. And you start to see these trucks as trucks of, of dismembered animals rather than trucks of pork chops and hamburgers and everything else. So it's, it's hard to unsee what you become, what you become aware of sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, and it frees you, it frees you to think for yourself. I mean, most people, when given the tools, when given the insights and given the opportunity to make change, will make 
choices that really are um, choices that reflect their integrity. Most people want to feel like they're good about how they're living. Most people want to be healthy as well. And it's really a matter of providing the, the awareness and the tools. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of talk right now with coronavirus about the wet markets in Asia being, you know, kind of like ground zero for these things. I mean, I've been through those markets. I've never been through them as a non-vegan, but I've been mm. through them as a vegan and I found them a highly traumatic experience. I, but, but to everybody else there, it, culturally, it was just, this is life. So, you know, we need to be aware that everybody has different culture and, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, once, once you see it, you cannot, once you see the truth, Mel, you cannot unsee the truth. So thank you very much for helping me with that. Um, just want to finish off by asking you uh, a little bit around how people can help um, support uh, your work and to transform carnism. I'm going to give you a, a silly example. I don't know what you think about this, actually. Um, there's a professional poker player. His name's Max Silver. Uh, and Max loves eating meat. He just loves it, right? So he, Max is the type of guy you'll he'll take a picture of his steak and, and stick it on Twitter and say, oh, you know, this is the best steak I've ever had. And there was a conversation recently about uh, veganism, and I say recently, about a year ago or so, about veganism, what we could do to help as a, as a poker industry. And a lot of poker players are vegan as well. And Max, and, and Max says, I understand what everybody's saying. I understand all the information. I want to make a difference, but I don't want to give up meat. So I will pay people $1,000 to give up eating meat for X amount of time. And that was his very unique way of trying to help, right? Um, you don't have to comment on that, but how can people help? Does everybody yeah. have to be a vegan? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. In my work, in my organization, we really um, follow the principles of effective altruism, you know, mm. which is really trying to, that the goal of effective altruism being to try to reduce as much harm as possible, as effectively as possible, which is actually why we focus on farmed animals um, in terms of the awareness raising work that we do. Um, we focus on cultivating relational literacy because we feel that that's actually really very foundational and immediately applicable. But when you look at the numbers of individuals who are being harmed in the world and the extent of the suffering and the inter interconnectedness of problems caused by animal agriculture, um, there's just, there's no question that in terms of harm reduction, that's like a lot of bang for the buck, really. And, and so, so in answer to your question more directly, um, you know, you're describing what I call a vegan ally. Um, you know, a vegan ally is a person who is not necessarily vegan themselves, um, but certainly who supports the idea that carnism needs to be transformed. They want to be a part of that transformation. Um, very often when vegans are, um, doing outreach, they understandably, yet I think um, inaccurately, suggest that either you're vegan and you're part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. Mm. Um, but that really eliminates like 99% of the pu public from being able to help transform a problem, you know, the, or support a cause that needs all the help it can get. Um, and, you know, when we look at social change, um, you know, social change happens not just because of a core group of people who are practicing principle, the principles of the change, but because there's enough supporters, you know, enough allies 
in my experience, um, vegan allies uh, do a tremendous amount of good for veganism um, and for the, in the transformation of carnism. Some of the journalists who interview me, who work for major you know, international publications, will interview me, they're not vegan, they write about carnism, carnism awareness, and reach millions of readers. You know, Some of the people who donate to my organization, philanthropists, they're not vegan but they want to get the word out and support the work that we're doing. So a vegan ally, you know, they can support however they want to. Um, and I would also recommend on a, for, so, so one answer to your question is you don't have to be vegan to aid in the transformation. You know, you can support vegan organizations, use your influence, whatever that may be. Maybe it's the pen, you know, maybe it's your money, maybe it's, you know, you're, uh, you're an authority figure in a certain area. Maybe you've got, you have vegans in your life, you know, who need your support to you to stand up for them and support them. Um, so be a vegan ally, however you can. Um, and also on an individual level, people can just be, uh, you know, as vegan as possible. I always encourage people to like not think you have to be totally vegan, but just sit when you sit down to a meal, ask yourself how how possible is it for me? How vegan can I make this meal today? Mm. The amount of times I hear people saying. Wow, I went to a vegan restaurant or something, and and the food was fantastic, you know. Yeah. It, it, and it's just it, it is, and um, it, it can be. And I think Game Changers has had a really big effect as well. I mean, yeah. I I have uh, mixing the relationship stuff with the with the veganism stuff. I actually have um, a cousin who was the best man. The first time I got married, he was my best man, really close friend. I really loved him. But it got to the point, Melanie, because of the choices I'd made of not drinking alcohol and, and being vegan, that every time I went to see my family, his family, they would ridicule me. Oh, now what have we got to do now that Lee, the boring guy is here, you know, they ridicule me. So I slowly kind of pushed him out of my life. You know, I didn't make a big deal about it. I did have a vulnerable conversation with him and said, you know, when you talk like that, you know, I feel X, Y, Z. And he said to me, you're so sensitive, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then just recently, I reached out to him. Just have a little conversation to see how he was doing. And he said, oh, by the way, we're all, uh, we're all vegetarian. We're all vegetarian now. I'm like, how did that happen? They, their kids watched Game Changers. The kids wanted to try to be vegan, and the parents supported them. And um, we never had a conversation about all those times they ridiculed me. But uh, I was uh, really happy that it had that effect. So, you know, I think podcasts like this, book, documentaries like Earthlings and uh, Game Changers, all that uh, helps uh, tremendously. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, poker players, if you uh, want to help Melanie and uh, help her NGO beyond carnism and uh, the work with relational literacy, um, how do they get hold of you, Melanie? Um, they can go to carnism.org and learn more about carnism there and melaniejoy.org and learn more about my work more broadly there. Brilliant. Thanks for coming on. Keep up the good work. We need it now more than ever. Thank you very much, Melanie. Thank you. Always a pleasure.